Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 40 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me. I am excited about this week's episode. Uh, This week, I have Dr. Joan Ifland on with me. Uh, Dr. Ifland is a food addiction specialist. She has her PhD in addictive nutrition. She's written the textbook, Processed Food Addiction, and runs a program that's quite intensive online support for people with food addiction. She's a well-known speaker on the topic of food addiction, And I think I'm very lucky to have the chance to sit down and talk with her. If you want more information on food addiction, check out uh, one of my first episodes. I think it was episode number four. I interviewed Dr. Vera Tarman, who's also an addiction specialist and has written a book called Food Junkies. So that's a place to get some more information about food addiction. I think I found this interview with Dr. Ifland really interesting because it really brought to my mind the scope of how common this is, particularly with processed food. And in my experience working in obesity medicine and working with the people I coach, a lot of people do identify with the idea of being addicted or having addictive behavior to certain foods. Uh, But when you actually sit and listen to the part of the interview where Dr. Iflin talks about the actual DSM-5 criteria for addictive disorders, it actually applies to a lot of people. Like you can think about it in terms of food and there's a lot of people that would be included with some form. Now I think from the beginning, it's good to talk about just the label of addiction because for some people that feels uncomfortable. It feels like another label that you should be ashamed of. And when we're dealing with extra weight, often we are carrying extra shame and things related just to that. And I don't think that's useful at all. And I'm not bringing up this topic to add another label to you. But I do think if these types of patterns are underneath and you're unaware of them, they can be driving you to overeat and eat off your plan and fall off your plan and not come back to it. And you may interpret that behavior as being something that's just, you know, lack of willpower, all the other things that we call it to ourselves. But really what it might be is this type of brain behavior. And I think that's a little bit freeing to know that, okay, there's an answer for it. There's a reason why that happens. And then once you actually know and recognize that this might be playing a role in your eating and in your weight loss, then you can look at specifically addressing it. And Dr. Ifland talks quite a bit in this interview about how do you actually deal with it and what's her approach to treating people with food addiction. And I'd be interested in hearing from you on whether food addiction is something that you feel you struggle with or something that's um, shown up in your life. So send me an email or comment on the blog post, which will be weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash doctor, that's dr dash ifland, I-F-L-A-N-D. So send me an email at info at Weight Solutions for Physicians or comment on the blog post and let me know what your thoughts were with this. Did it surprise you or was it something you'd already known about yourself? Did it change your thoughts on it? I'd be interested in hearing from you. I think food addiction is a topic that often isn't talked about much, just like binge eating and things like that. And really, as a society, I think we need to talk about it and remove the layers of shame for the people that are dealing with this and just have it open as a topic of discussion and work on providing better resources and better solutions for people who have this. All right, without further ado, let's just get right into the interview. All right, welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So food addiction is... Uh, one of the most popular episodes that I've done on this podcast and it was one of the earliest ones that I did and so I think it's great to have the topic discussed again and maybe in a little more detail um, so that people listening can start to really build an understanding of the issue and whether or not it impacts them or people they might know. Mm -hmm. I think it's brilliant. Uh, I think from my standpoint 
that it is driving overeating. It is the driver. So it's the hidden driver behind overeating and therefore also the hidden driver behind a whole range of uh, metabolic diseases. So maybe if we start with you just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field. Thank you. Um, so I grew up in a pretty um, chaotic household and um, I was raising two daughters in a chaotic household, a lot of anger and fighting and um, criticism and I didn't want to be doing it. I was doing a lot of things to get it to stop. I was going to therapy, I was doing women's groups, I was even doing 12-step groups and it wasn't stopping. And I was yo-yo dieting after these two pregnancies. And then in January of 1996, I got a new, what I thought was just the next diet, and it eliminated sugars and flowers. Hmm. And the miracles just started rolling in. I was shocked, and I'm not a medical professional, I, uh, I had an MBA. I had an MBA from Stanford and an undergraduate degree in political science and economics from Oberlin College. So I was shocked when cravings went away, brain fog went away, fatigue went away, when the allergies stopped, you know, the nose dripping and eyes itching all the time, and the sinus infections finally cleared up after years, and the bloating stopped. But what shocked me most was that the irritability stopped, the raging stopped, the anger stopped, the critical nature just faded away. Hmm. So I started giving people a handout of clean foods and I noticed that nobody could do it. And so I wrote an entire popular book about how you do it. That didn't help. I even got on TV and I did one-on-one -on -one, uh, education. I learned a tapping system and I noticed that nobody could get started on this. So finally I went back to school to earn that PhD in addictive nutrition. And I did a doctoral program where I educated a small church over a two year period. And that worked, but I didn't know why and I didn't know how to replicate it. Mm -hmm. So I wrote chapters, papers for other people. And then finally CRC Press came along and asked me to write the textbook for the field. It was in the writing of the textbook that I had my big breakthrough which is two things. One, this is a really, really serious addiction. And so that explained why nobody could get started. You can't just like hand a smoker, like a piece of paper that says, stop smoking, just breathe clean air. Right. And so as I did things like you handed people a handout, that was kind of the equivalent of saying, oh, just get over the worst addiction that you can possibly imagine. So I just had clarity about why nothing I had done had worked. And the second thing I really learned is this is a triggered disease. It's cued. There's a whole huge body of literature showing that these intense cravings, which give us loss of control, are, are stimulated by outside factors. So with that knowledge, once I turned in the manuscript for the textbook, I started uh, online services at the level and intensive outpatient programs. So mm -hmm. we have four hours a day of, of live programming and that is now working. So after 23 years, I have something that works. Now I am ready to go out and talk to the world about this because I didn't want to go without a solution. Um, but now we have a really good answer. But I got into it not because of a weight issue or really because of binging or any of that. I got into it because of an anger issue. But now <laughs> here I am. Yeah. 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 So why, like you said, it's a really bad addiction. Why is food addiction such a bad addiction? Okay. So first of all, we have diagnostic criteria for alcoholism that we've adapted to uh, processed foods. And it just adapts so easily. So that was really the epiphany. How did I figure out just from writing the textbook that this was really serious? There are 11 behaviors. They're defined by the American Psychiatric Association and they're laid out in detail in the uh, Diagnostic Manual for Mental Illness, the DSM. And the APA has been working on these criteria for 50 years. They're very, they very closely conform to the international criteria for addiction diagnostics. They work. They work perfectly. Why? 
because we have a substance use disorder. It's no different from alcoholism in terms of the behaviors that are elicited. So as I wrote one full chapter with all the evidence that this behavior is manifesting in processed food use, I got, you know, the diagnostic criteria say that there are thresholds. If you have six or more, you have a serious case. And I got to chapter six, and with each chapter, I had said to myself, hmm, well, most food addicts have this. And then I got to chapter seven, I said, well, most food addicts have this, and eight, and nine, and 10, and 11. And I thought, dang, most food addicts have a really, really severe addiction. It starts very, and then there are other criteria. It starts very young. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of different substances. It's readily available. It's heavily triggered. And so the conditioning is really, really deep. The neuron conditioning is really, really deep. This is Pavlovian conditioning of neurons. It's very deeply seated. It's, um, you know, it's like the dog that you, you take the dog for a walk for 10 years. Every day you walk out your door, you turn left. But then one day you walk out the door and you say, no, no, we got to turn right now. That dog will keep trying to turn left for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. And so that's, basically, that's why this is so severe. It's why it's so hard to treat. And so basically, because it's like really, it could start as soon as you start eating solid foods, depending what what foods you're offered. Um, we get, we have evidence that if the parents are eating processed foods at the moment of conception, the genes are going to replicate in an addictive way. It's at the moment of genetics. That's mm -hmm. fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so they're born with it. Yeah, so born with a propensity and then in a society where it's not only readily available, but it's out also kind of often condoned through media and other people's behavior. It's vehemently pushed. Yeah. You know, I have members who um, say they belong to faith organizations and they're like, they don't want their children to have sugar. And members of the faith organization will like pry open the children's hands and put sugar in their hands. It's pushed, it's pushed vehemently. It's deeply embedded in rituals. Yeah. And, uh, and it's, a, it's hidden and the medical community doesn't know it, how to diagnose it or treat it. So there's no help for it. Yeah, I think a lot of the medical community doesn't really know it, it truly exists, right? Like, it's... I'm so grateful to be here with you today. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, this and, and binge eating behaviors and those things are just, or at least for my medical training, just weren't talked about. Like, I, they weren't discussed at all. Um, and so then, of course, there's no skills taught. Um, mm -hmm. And I've had to learn them. And the more I talk to and work with people with weight stuff... The both of those things, and I kind of think of it'd be interesting to see your opinion, but I think of them kind of on the same a bit of a scale between binge eating and addiction, and they're related, but um, they impact people's lives so much, and that's physically but also mentally. Well, totally. And I, I dug into the United States Department of Agriculture statistics. And um, they're very hard to come by, those statistics. Like the food industry doesn't want them. Oh, that's the other big difference is that we have a very aggressive food industry pushing the addiction. So this all started when tobacco came into and took over processed foods in the 1980s. There is an addiction business model, and they applied it to processed foods. They, they perfected it around tobacco, so it's a lot of advertising, heavily addictive properties in the product, young age of onset, lots of availability and very cheap prices. Mm. And they took that model from cigarettes and they applied it straight to processed foods. And you see it, the obesity epidemic takes off right after that. And so that's fascinating. So we have an I was gonna say like, I don't, so basically what you're saying is in the eighties, the tobacco companies actually like bought out or or started the the big food companies. So like the big food companies are related to the big tobacco companies. Totally. 
totally. Nabisco, Kraft, General Foods, Den and Yogurt, Sushard Chocolate. They just, they bought them and then there was a particular consultant who had a PhD in uh, psychology and marketing from Harvard, Howard Moskowitz, who developed a technique for maximizing the amount of sugar, fat, salt that any one processed food product could carry. And then he just went one product to the next to the next through the processed food industry and loaded them all up with sugar, fat, salt, put dairy on top, caffeine, processed fats, and uh, gluten. Gluten is even addictive. So hmm. it was, it's just a nightmare. But we, I, I mean, I think it's pretty clear what happened. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then along yeah. with that, because the same sort of time is when the low fat guidelines were really kicking in. And so the healthy food that wasn't quite so processed all became more processed as fat was removed from them. And that was satisfying. And it was replaced with sugar. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So what we know is we have a hardcore, this is, it, it actually bears some similarities. I know this is going to sound over the top. I admit it right from the beginning. There are some similarities to the opiate addiction. So these, this is, these are substances that have repeatedly gotten into our system for long enough that our brain craving pathways are now hyperactivated. And when you can only have either the craving pathways or the frontal lobe active at one time, they compete. Mm -hmm. So when the craving pathways are active, you get the craving pathways also control the, the behavior centers. They control the thoughts. I got to have that. It's my favorite. It's my birthday. I'm just this once. And so they control the thoughts and the behavior. You can actually see the impulses going from the craving centers to the behavior centers. The frontal lobe goes offline. So the frontal lobe is where we have, oh, no, I don't eat that. No, that, my doctor told me not to eat that. No, that'll make me sick. And that center, those centers in the frontal lobe, they're not reaching the behavior center and they're not broadcasting thoughts. They're not firing. Hmm. So this was research done by um, Nora Volkoff, who's the executive director of the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Very, very, very prestigious research. So that was, that's, you need both shoes. You need the shoe that says, okay, cravings are really intense. And then you need the other shoe. Oh, the braking system is not working. Mm hmm. And so I yeah. will get to it, I'm sure. But the, the I'd be interested to hear how do you get that braking system working again? Uh -huh. um, and yeah. we can it's talk brain about brain retraining. Yeah. Yeah. You train. So the food industry trained these neurons to crave. And you can with enough exposure. And that's why we need four. we're offering four hours a day now. We're still in beta mode, but um, this is this was the breakthrough in treatment, and and we use the Zoom screen. So what we're doing is we're saying, okay, the evidence for frontal lobe impairment, cognitive impairment, is very very strong. So yes, you do. You've got to restore cognitive function. Absolutely. However, there's the problem: the learning center in the brain's not working. Memory's not working. Attention span's not working. Decision making's not working. Impulse control's not working. Satiation's not working, and emotional control is not working. Hmm. So you're going to go in through the frontal lobe. Oh, just teach them. No, <laughs> no, that's not going to work. But the part of the brain that's working perfectly is mirror neurons. So people cannot learn. They cannot remember. They cannot execute. But they can copy. Hmm. They can copy. So if you get somebody, I mean, this is this was the miracle that I saw in January of last year. I got introduced to Zoom, and we said, okay, well, we're going to do a whole, like a full week program, morning to night on Zoom, seven days, and see what happens. Well, within the first day, most of the people in the group, we had a group of about 15 maybe, most of the people in the group by the end of the day had control of their food everybody had control by the end of the week. People who had been trying to get off 
get into withdrawal for months, years, decades. They did it like that. It was shocking, you know, especially after 23 years of trying handouts and church groups and this, that, and the other thing. It's just like, oh, wow. And I, and I repeated it. I've repeated that now, uh, I think, three or four times. And it works reliably. So I just needed something that was reliable. You've got to activate mirror neurons. It's, they're functioning perfectly. They will function until the, the moment you die. They're just out there copying, copying, copying. What is everybody else doing? Oh, we're going to do that too. And they can actually stimulate specific neurons in the brain. They can stimulate that behavior center. They're very good. They're, they're scattered all over the brain. And it's, uh, the technical term is conformance drive. Huh. You activate conformance drive and people do great. And so when you say, we just, yeah. Um, so that's like, are you demonstrating kind of more appropriate responses to some of those addictive foods or what do you do for their mirror neurons to, to copy? Okay. So we do have what I call a clean food plan. I have a list at food addiction resources. It's a free website. Food Addiction Resources has a bunch of handouts, over 20 handouts. Any of your doctors are welcome to download and rebrand those handouts. Those are free. You know, that's kind of like I'm paying you back, uh, Universe, for giving me this information. Any, anybody in the public can go to that website, Food Addiction Resources, click on handouts, and you will get like the 26 most important things you need to know. There's an incredibly complicated disease, mm -hmm. incredibly complex, and you just chip away at it. You know, it takes a very long time because you've got decades of very deep programming to, to calm down. You're going to calm down those craving pathways and then really stimulate that frontal lobe. So what are the specific things we do? Classic substance use disorder recovery. Hmm. You just that alcoholism model and you dump that right on top of processed foods and you will, then you get the, you get the results. Finally, the reason why nothing has worked research, research shows that nothing works for weight loss. Nothing keeps the weight from coming back. The reason is because we don't have this addiction recovery model in play. So what do you do? First of all, you give people a lot of choices because there, you might not be able to start with the food. You mm -hmm. might have like a really stressful relationship going on that needs to be addressed before the person can even think about food because the stress pathway aggravates this craving pathway and vice versa. There's a really nasty little loop going on there between cravings and stress. So you get things like, um, I was just really stressed out thinking about food. It's because those pathways are firing simultaneously. So we do have a clean food plan. And I believe, um, now it's just because I'm one of the few researchers in this field, that it is the only really clean food plan out there because there are so many different substances. Mm -hmm. um, so we do have a clean food plan. It's got all the sugars off. I mean, no kidding. It's got all the flour off, all the gluten off, all the excessive salt. You've got to have a little salt. It's got the processed foods off. It's got dairy off. I mean, Dairy has four different casomorphines in it. It's designed to put a baby cow to sleep. It's mm -hmm. an addictive substance for humans. And then, of course, caffeine. And then food additives, things that are totally hidden, not on the label. So anything that has been processed, anything that's been inside a processing plant is suspect. And we, we tend to just not use it. I mean, like canned fish, that's okay. But so I mean, that is very wholesome. It's only, so plants have natural endorphins in them. And when you, it's, that's fine. You know, you eat a tomato, it's fine. But um, let, me, let me think of a better example. If you were trying to chew on um, sugar cane, it'd be fine. You, you could not get addicted to that because you can't get enough of, of the substance into your system. But just like cocaine, when it's extracted and concentrated, then it becomes addictive because enough of the addictive substance in the plant is concentrated. Right. So we know, for example, that gluten 
does attach to the opiate pathways in the brain. This is Perlmutter's book, Brain Brain. Hmm. We know that in the 1940s in the US, there, were, there was a program to try to pr increase the productivity of wheat. And they unknowingly vastly increased the amount of gluten in the wheat. So we, now we have just this rampant gluten sensitivity and depression and irritability and Alzheimer's and dementia. And there's evidence that this is related to these very high levels of gluten in our food. So first, when you are treating an addiction to substances, you have to focus on the substances. So like if you, if you had an alcoholic come in for treatment, you wouldn't just sit that alcoholic down and say, okay, let's spend a couple of years working on your childhood issues and then we'll get around to see if you're drinking less. Mm -hmm. No, no, you get them off the alcohol. You know, you gotta like get them sober. Yeah. So that's one big thing we do. Um, and then we do, we do a lot of um, little tiny fun, very tiny fun emotional processing exercises so that people don't build up stress and inadvertently activate that craving pathway. So our four hours of programming per day are spread out through the day. So East Coast of the US, it's eight o'clock, 11 o'clock, four o'clock, and eight o'clock. And then we record, the last uh, live event of the day is, is a conference call and we record it. So we like have this archive of recorded calls. So that if somebody starts to get triggered between live events, they can turn on a conference call and get their mirror neurons back on their side. Right. So this is, this is what we do. So something as simple as like, I'm, I'm interested in this concept of the mirror neurons, but so something as simple as just hearing kind of them, the like reprogramming talk or like the, the newer way of thinking and being able to reaccess it is enough to activate those mirror neurons um, in moments of being triggered or craving. Yes. And what's so important is when you do that, the craving pathways stop firing, frontal lobe starts firing, and it's just like, it's like moving from one room to another. In one room, you know, people are smoking and drinking and fighting. And then in the next room, everybody's calmly listening to a meditation. You want to be in room number two. In room number two, you get control over food. In room number one, you're just being stimulated to overeat. So where does this come from? This is the most powerful primitive survival mechanism in the brain. And it is, um, you know, it's the reason why we're alive. So if you were in a tribe, you would live. If you somehow got separated from your tribe, you would die because mm -hmm. the tribe knew how to find food and shelter and uh, fight off predators. So your drive to do what the tribe is doing was life or death. If your tribe was going off to look for food and you're just like, mm, I don't feel like it, you would die. <laughs> so, you know, like you, that conformance drive is, I really believe it is the strongest single neuron function, conformance drive. Hmm. And of course the food industry exploits it ruthlessly. So you, you know, that's where the uh, identification identification in very small children with cartoon characters. The characters are in the programming and then the characters are in the commercials. Oh, so so-and-so character eats that. Oh, well, I'm going to eat it too. It's helpless. Helpless. It's a reflex. It's not, you know, the, the neocortex is the new part of the brain. It is the lowest on the brain totem pole, if you will, in terms of where does the brain allocate resources and where does the brain uh, broadcast from? It's like the neocortex. <laughs> never. If, if somebody else wants dominance, they get it. Like reptilian brain gets it. Craving pathway gets it. Stress pathway gets it. Neocortex is always like the last. So, lost in the yeah. line. so can people be addicted to certain foods? Like, are there people that are sugar addicted, but maybe, you know, don't have the same addiction patterns around salty, savory foods? 
or yeah. is it kind of like an you have addicted to alcohol, but sorry. Oh, an alcoholic can be addicted to alcohol, but not meth. Right. Okay. So within the food, there. But you do want different. to get both of them out. Yeah. I think that's the other thing. The other thing that these are all addictive substances, and you don't want somebody to, you know, get off of sugar and go on to cheese. You mm -hmm. don't want that to happen. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that happens all the time. And to um, that brings up the whole concept of like cross addictions, where if somebody stops something like alcohol, often food then becomes a replacement addiction. Or we see it sometimes the other way where if you stop overeating and stop the food addiction, the alcohol can slip in or gambling or some other behavior. That's, that's what happens. Um, there's evidence that that happens in bariatric surgery. Right. Yeah, that they get replacement addictions. Yeah. So you got to addiction. You just got to, you got to focus on, just focus on this one, one big, big thing. And then everything else falls into place. And the one, one big, big thing is that there are substances driving the behavior. And once you get that, oh, this is a substance-based addiction, everything falls into place. Right. And so in your program, do you suggest abstinence abstinence from all substances that have an addiction addictive potential yeah so what are we people what do we promise what's our promise it's a relief from obsession hmm. it's getting control of your thoughts it's getting to think about what you want to think about you have this you it'll never not be there it's permanent programming the obsessive programming these hyperactive neurons, craving neurons, limbic system neurons, they will always have a tendency because they've been trained to do so. They will always have a tendency to over-release addictive neurotransmitters, dopamine, serotonin, opiate, and endorphin, and endocannabinoid. They will always be trained to do that. Different processed foods train all of those pathways. And that, that programming, it's just like riding a bike. You get on a bike, you wobble, and then you go. That training will always be there. So the potential to lose control and not be able to get it back, because remember, once that craving pathway is activated, the frontal lobe just shuts down, and you can't get to the thought of, oh, my goodness, this is going to make me sick. You get, That thought can't, can't get its its impulse over to the behavior center. Mm -hmm. and that is scary. And that explains a lot of, you know, what a lot of people talk about is like, I start thinking, Oh, I'll just have this one. Like I'll just have this piece of cake. I'll just have that cookie, this bag of chips. And then all of a sudden it's like you're back to ground zero and aren't totally sure how you got there or why it happened so fast. But that's essentially what you're describing. That's criterion number one, unintended use. Okay. So there are 11 criteria. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, let's go through the criteria because I think um, for people listening, how would they identify if this is actually acting in their lives? So un unintended use, criteria number one. Yeah. So unintended use can be I wake up, I tell myself I'm going to eat healthy, and by 10 o'clock I'm eating something unhealthy. Or it can be, I eat one, uh, I, I tell myself I'm going to eat one and then I eat the whole package. Or uh, I'm going to go to the restaurant, but I'm not having dessert, and then you have dessert. Right. That's loss of control. Okay, Which so is number very, two is like that, ev Everything that you just listed is extremely common. <laughs> so keep going, because... You know I, how common it is? There's a study, and it's referenced in Michael Moss's Sugar, Fat, Salt book. I don't have the study. He references the study. It was done by one of the, I think, one of the beverage companies. 50% of grocery store decisions, purchase decisions, are made after the person gets inside the store. Huh. So 50% of the entire grocery business is dependent on impulse buying. Yep. That's, loss, that's massive loss of control. When you look, when I got done with those USDA statistics, what I saw was that Americans in 1997, and it's only gotten worse, were eating a pound per person per day 
of sugars, flours, some containing gluten, high fat dairy, and French fries. Mm. So, you, you know, you ask this question, gee, who has this? I wonder if, you know, everybody has that. Yeah. Yeah. And now, so, yeah, keep going. Failure to uh, cut back. Okay. So, failure. Um, cravings. Uh, a lot of time spent, and you will people spent using and then recovering. And when you get into brain fog and boredom and you realize you're watching TV because you just don't have enough brain power to do anything else, it is entire lives, entire weekends. People just barely drag themselves to work and otherwise they're either eating or kind of grogging it off. So that's um, number four, time spent. Those are kind of the internal ones and then it spreads out. What so was the next three, three? The connection kind of cut out, cravings. so I missed three. Cravings. Cravings, okay. Cravings, yeah. Yeah, the food industry is so gutsy. I mean, they don't care. They just put cravings and loss of control right into their commercials. That's true, yeah. Okay, so number uh, five, six, and seven are as the... Then it's called a neuroadaptation. So as the changes in the brain become stronger and stronger and the craving pathways have more and more control over the behavior centers, uh, it begins to spread out into the person's life and uh, relationships suffer. Like somebody wants you to stop, you can't stop. Right. Or somebody loses interest. I mean, with food addiction, you also have this incredibly complicating factor of a very significant change in body shape. So the, the, the addictive substances are causing the accumulation of fat tissue under the skin. And that causes a lot of problems in relationships. So problems in relationships is one, failure to uh, fulfill roles. So you, um, you have to drop out of school because you can't concentrate or you can't get on the floor with your kids, or you can't even go for a walk with them because you're so tired. So fail, failure to fulfill roles is number two. And then um, giving up of social, giving up of events. So I'm not going because um, I've gained all this weight, or I'm not going because I'd rather go home and eat, or I'm not going because I don't like anybody there anyway. I used to like them, but I don't anymore. So loss of uh, events, going to events. I think that's okay. So that's, oh, isolation. Mm -hmm. You see it massively. There's a whole book out there about the disappearance of community groups. Like the bowling leagues have disappeared and the fraternities and, or not the college fraternities, but the, you know, growing people, the, um, you know, the sports leagues and the, the civic groups, community groups, uh, even faith organizations, they, people are not showing up for them anymore. They are stuck in their houses, glued to screens, eating processed foods, you know, a pound per person per day. Mm -hmm. And you, how do I know this has reached every, every level of the society? Because one of my other attempts was a processed was a prepared meal company, clean from processed foods. So we marketed to uh, a particular very high-end law firm. And those guys, uh, at the end of like the first five days, so there is a withdrawal period, I'll come to that. So I would get them on the phone and they said, well, Joan, kind of weird things happen. So uh, I'm thinking more clearly. Uh, my cravings have gone away. And I'm not having the mid-morning and mid-afternoon slump. So is that because of the food? So you just think, dang, dang, at that level, these are the highest functioning people practically in the entire culture. They have been affected. So yeah, this is, everybody's got this, unless they're already eating clean. So mm -hmm. number eight is hazardous use. And, you know, you think, oh, that's drunk driving. Well, food addicts don't do that. Oh, yes, they do. So, you just, these food addicts are coming out of uh, fast food places. 
and they're putting in the french fries and the soda and driving with their elbow. That is hazardous use. It looks different, so it can also be picking up food and putting it in your mouth while it's hot and burning you, but you just can't stop. Or eating frozen food and burning your mouth, you can't stop. You, you might not be able to see your feet, so you might be very prone to falling. And there's evidence for all of this. Um, more accidents, so that brain fog shows up as more accidents. So yes, um, and they might be not strong enough to get out of an abusive relationship. They might mm -hmm. be being abused. So the hazardous use looks a, a little bit different, but it's definitely there. People hurting themselves in the uh, compulsion to use these substances. And I guess number along, nine, I was going to say along those lines would be like the diabetic who who knows their sugars aren't controlled but continues to eat sugary foods because they can't stop. Exactly. Awesome example. Yeah. You've been told to stop. You're going to have a stroke or kidney failure or blindness or amputation. And so you can't stop. So that goes right into number nine use in spite of knowledge of consequences. Hmm. And then number 10 is progression. You're using more, you're using it more often. You're buying bigger containers. You used to just eat in the evening. Now you're eating it morning, noon, and night. You used to stop at one place on your way home. Now you're stopping at three places, and it's progression. And number uh, 11 is a withdrawal syndrome. Hmm. And it's definite. So like that's the Nicole Avina who, with um, Bert, oh, his name's gone right out of my head, but anyway, they demonstrated a withdrawal syndrome in mice from sugar that looks just like morphine withdrawal. And uh, there's a great researcher, Shwarma, who did a withdrawal syndrome demonstration uh, around fat. So fat consumption in women, you get off the fat and you become irritable. And we see it all the time. It's an acute four-day withdrawal. I've talked to a wonderful uh, clinician Carrie Wiley at Shades of Hope. So they do treat it with a clean food plan. I said, is it, you know, is it what I think it is, an acute four-day withdrawal? She said, yes, absolutely. It's uh, alcohol has an acute four-day withdrawal syndrome. And then you then you're you've got bumpy roads after that, but the headache, the nausea, the irritability, the lethargy, the muscle aches, the um grogginess, the intensified cravings. It's very, very important for people to know that there is a withdrawal syndrome and it's four days. Some people it's eight days, but for the vast majority, it's four days. Why is that so important? Because I think a lot of people give up diets on the second day because they've got a headache and they just, they can't. You think so it's, they just always it's like that? Yeah, they'll, they'll stick with it. And then they'll pop out of it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then I think, you know, you asked about treatment. The other thing that we really train hard on is cue avoidance. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so where are those, where are the stress cues coming from? The visual cues, the smell cues. You, do you have to drive to work in, in a new way? Did you have to send out an email to your colleagues? Please don't send me the list of icky stuff that's in the break room. You know, the cues are just, but they can be managed. And the ones that are unavoidable, you can train the brain. Like we write plays. I'm going to this place. There's going to be these foods there, these people. This is what I'm going to be wearing. I'm going to be, uh, it's going to be this time of day, this time of year. It's going to be on this day of the week. So you're cueing the brain. And then you say, and this is how I'm going to behave while I'm there. And this is how I'm going to behave on the day after. Because sometimes people get through the event and then they fall apart on the day after. That's a really You can train to get ready for these cute situations people just sail through them if they know what to do right and yeah. so really the core the core of the treatment is abstinence and then working on figuring out the cues and the the reprogramming and the mental rehearsals so that they can then better manage the environment that they will always be exposed to. And you've got to do that inside of a community to activate mirror neurons. 
Okay, interesting. So you need other people to do the same thing. You gotta be, and it's, the difference between hearing it and, and laying your eyes on it is night and day. Because I tried, that was something else I tried for a couple of years was a daily phone call. So like in the middle of the textbook, I said, okay, well, this is serious. Well, in AA, they say 90 meetings in 90 days. So I'll just have a daily phone call. It was not enough. Huh. This is much worse than alcoholism. So by people seeing you when you're talking about the stuff, that has more power because it's activating more parts of your brain than just if they're listening to something. Yeah, so the research shows that the, the people, the most powerful activation of mirror neurons, and why do I say that? Because I want people's behavior to be safe. So I want to activate those mirror neurons as absolutely most powerfully as I possibly can. That is what will keep people safe. So the research shows, there are two great books on this. One is called Mirroring and the other one's called Connection. And they're both written by really hardcore scientists. Um, you need five people. If they're doing something that you've already done a lot, you're more likely to copy them. So mm -hmm. it's just like when you're watching a tennis, when you're seeing the audience at a tennis match, you know the tennis players because they're going like this, you know? Their mirror neurons are like, get it! <laughs> they're just like, so... If it's something that you've done a lot, and if it's people that you know really well. Hmm. So um, if we, we can get five people on a Zoom chat, and uh, we get them there a lot. So again, four hours a day, people get to know each other really well in this group. Um, then those people are powerful enough to actually activate mirror neurons powerfully enough to actually have that person engage in safe behavior. Hmm. So along those lines, if it kind of brings up, you know, the, the tripping point I see so many people at is you try to start a new way of eating and you mess up or eat something you didn't plan on, end up eating a bunch of stuff you didn't plan on, whatever it looks like, and then you stop. But what you're saying is the more you keep practicing restarting and have people around you that are doing similar and that you have a relationship with, the more powerful, mm -hmm. like keep building skill and power on stopping. Yeah, it, it's a process. And Nora Volkoff and George Kuhn, who George is at the, um, oh, like I know him, I don't know him, but um, he's at the Institute of Alcohol Abuse. They have published on this extensively. They are pleading with the addiction community not to punish lapsing, not to judge lapsing, not to shame lapsing. It's normal. I just saw a brilliant presentation by a researcher, John F. Kelly. He's published on this. Yeah, it's, it's, so his research asked the question, how long does it really take to recover from an addiction? And um, it's, so people will struggle with drug and alcohol addiction for four or five years before they seek treatment. They will go through four or five treatment episodes before they have their first year of abstinence. And they will do those episodes over a four to eight year period. And so this is what you just said. They're building skills. And we see exactly that. There are longer periods of abstinence and control, shorter periods of lapsing, fewer lapses, gradually over months and months and months. Now, I think we're getting really rapid results because not only are we offering four hours a day, but it's very easy to access. So people have said, well, this is the first time I've had control because I never have to hold on for more than a couple of hours. The really cool thing is that people can come into a one-hour Zoom meeting among really kind, compassionate, understanding patient people. You've got to have the right people. Mm -hmm. And by the time that meeting is over, they're happy. They're, you, know, you can just practically see the dopamine, so, I don't know, the happiness, peaceful neurotransmitters just 
just seeping gently into their brains. And by the time they've gone through that one hour, they don't have cravings anymore, they're not stressed anymore, and they go off happy. So meetings are a direct replacement for loss of control. They're a direct replacement for, I'm gonna eat this, I know I'm gonna eat this. You come out of that meeting, I don't wanna eat that. So this is something very startling because, um, you know, I've never been a treatment professional. I've done a lot of treatment on myself because I needed it. But um, to see this absolute one-for-one -one replacement of I'm going to eat this, I'm going to lose control, I'm going to lose control now, this stuff is in my house, to one hour later, oh, no, I, you know what, I'm going to go put that, yeah, come with me, guys, I'm going to put it down the drain. I'm going to put it down the disposal. I'm going to put some soapy water on that. It's astonishing and so beautiful. So the fact that they can get on their computers, their tablets, their smartphones, people take us to the doctor's office, like, okay, I'm in the waiting room. You know, they've got their earbuds in, nobody else can hear, but I'm in my car, I'm going shopping. I just stepped out of my grandson's birthday party because I needed a connection. They can get to it very, very easily. And if they can't get to a live meeting, they can get on a conference call and activate those mirror neurons. Oh yeah, I don't need that. This is tribal. This is what you're trying to do is get that tribal identification, identification to be so strong that even under pretty intense triggering and cueing, you just, you're like, you want the, the thought to come up. Oh, my tribe doesn't need that. So really it's replacing which tribe you're following. Like, you know, we've all been following the modern food tribe. Um, and that's not getting us anywhere. <laughs> and so we're finding a new tribe that you can rely on and follow them. That's interesting because I remember years ago when I was trying to lose my own weight, I had this epiphany that basically in order to lose weight, I was going to have to just disconnect from everything that is considered kind of normal in, the, in our food society and just accept that that wasn't normal for me. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. I've asked myself so many times, why, I, why was I able to do this 23 years ago? And also, why did I have such a massive, I had a massive relapse in 2014 when my dad died. Hmm. So the reason I was able to do this 23 years ago was I already didn't watch TV. I was already walking. I was already not a shopper. You know, and I was already, um, and I had a great therapist who gave me some rules for my household. So my household, my household members were not allowed to bring the stuff in the house. They were not allowed to ask me to get it for them or ask me to pay for it or eat it in front of me. So she got the cueing. She said, Joe, this is just like smoking. So if you were trying to quit smoking, you wouldn't allow them to smoke in your house. I'm like, right on. So I got the cueing inside the house way under control <clears throat> very early on. And then why did I lose it? Well, I went to a once a week meeting. I had really strong identification with those people, highly motivated because I stopped raging. I didn't want to be raging and it finally stopped. So I was highly motivated. And I went to that group, you know, it was 1996. We didn't have the internet, but I went physically to that group just like faithfully identified very, very closely with them, thought about them a lot during the week. And then when I went back to get my uh, doctorate, I stopped going. Hmm. And so my mirror neurons are like, oh, well, who are we going to copy now? And I only had mainstream culture. My dad was, he liked a particular kind of sweet. And at his, uh, when he died, which was five years of pretty high stress stuff, um, that sweet was everywhere and I ate one and I was off to the races and I couldn't get back. And then finally I did find an online group and it was really amazing because the next day I was okay. I might just like, I got stimulated by the cueing of being in this group back into my frontal lobe. Which that's really interesting because what that speaks to is okay. Yes. The craving pathways are always there. I would talk about like, you know, super highways that we let grow over a little bit, but they're still there. But then, too, what that is saying is 
these new pathways that you're building through trying again and again and again and keeping going are also always there. And the more you get back on, the, the easier you can reconnect and re-clip into that, that new path too, which I think is a really important message for people to hear. Totally, totally. You just really hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Programming, programming, conditioning, condition. This is Pavlovian learning. Repetition, repetition, repetition. That is your protection, not only against being overweight, but you know, like there's this incredible book called Lick the Sugar Habit. It was written, I'm going to say, in the 1980s. It lists 125 diseases, not the disease, the study that demonstrates an association between that disease and sugar. So not only are you, but you yeah, it's not just a weight issue at all. In fact, I think of the weight issue as being this incredible distraction. You know, you walk in, oh yeah, I can see your weight, but I cannot see your hyperactive craving pathways. So I'm gonna diagnose, measure, study, research, publish about the weight, because I can't see that craving pathway. Right. So it's just been an incredible disservice to the effort to get this really severe, devastating addiction under control. And I, um, again, a couple of years ago at an OBC medicine conference, Dr. Lustig was speaking, yes. and I remember him saying, we have as much evidence now for the harms of sugar as what we do for cigarettes. And yet, you know, it's still embedded in our culture. And that was a real, that was before I would switch to lower carb eating. So th that was a real like, what? <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Medicine, right? Yeah, it's over. So there are 2,000 citations in that textbook. Yeah. And the Why? Because we have all this obesity, eating disorder, and drug addiction research. Those research just didn't know that they were demonstrating some aspect of food addiction, but they were. So that's why each one of those 11 chapters on those 11 diagnostic criteria, I think the, sh the least number of citations is 25 and the most might be 125. The food chapter, this, the chapter that describes the evidence for the substances is I think got 250 citations. Wow. So mm -hmm. one question I have is how do you find getting people to buy in like for some people the term addiction is a loaded word and some people resist that concept so how do you get people to buy into that idea and buy into this lifelong um treatment or focus on management that's needed to manage it so two answers uh one there's a terrific study done in australia asking people which was worse to be called obese or to be called food addicted. Yeah. And they preferred food addicted. Mm -hmm. Because it pointed to something other than slothfulness, which is what overweight people are accused of, the discrimination stigmatization of people with a large body shape is just huge, astonishing. Huge. If you ever tried to say something uh, like that on the basis of race, religion, ethnicity, you know, you would just be shredded. But people say that based on body shape and they, they get away with it, even in the medical community, especially in the medical community. Yeah. Okay, so that diagnosis, I would just, I know for every medical professional who listens to your podcast, I'm begging you learn the diagnosis. You already know it. You've been trained in addictions. You know those 11 criteria. Simply ask your patients, do you eat in spite of knowledge of consequences? Yeah, I know better. I just can't do it. Do you, are you eating more than you used to? Yeah. Um, do you start a diet? No, yeah, I can't, I can't do it. Like uh, unintended use. Yeah, yeah, I do that. You only need six to get a, a diagnosis of severe addiction and everybody's got it. So yes. start diagnosing, please, please, please start diagnosing. And I think what, I think what you will find is, well, I'll give, you a, I'll give you a little story. So I have this enormous, I mean, Facebook is flooding people into uh, a group that we run, a Facebook group, 
food addiction education. Everybody's welcome to join, except if you're marketing, and then we're going to kick you out. <laughs> now we keep it safe in there. So food addiction education. Um, somebody posted the other day that they had come in, and just by reading the posts, they realized they had food addiction. And they said that they just cried. Because having undiagnosed food addiction is hell. <laughs> it's hell. You're just doing all this crazy behavior, or you're being blamed for it, and you can't stop it. And you just think, I'm going to be this way the rest of my life, doing these crazy things, hiding cakes in the laundry room, waiting until everybody goes to bed so that I can eat an entire two dozen box of donuts. I'm going to have this the rest of my life because I've tried everything. I've had the surgery. I've had the therapy. I've read every diet book. I have listened to every, you know, summit and I, and it, nothing has stopped. So I'm going to have this for the rest of my life. I am going to be in hell for the rest of my life. Yeah. That's and then super they, powerful. they finally get a diagnosis. Oh, I have an addiction. Oh, you know, there's snow. There's yeah. snow. Are you kidding? Yeah. So I think that's a really good spot to leave it. And we've covered so many, I think, really good points that'll resonate with a lot of people. And I think, honestly, my takeaway points are I have this conversation with people almost daily. And I don't always, I haven't always, I think, labeled the, some of these subtler things that just seem like routine people who struggle with weight and overeating and stuff as addiction. And so it's, I think it'll change how I manage things. And I think there's a lot of people oh, listening that'll identify with it. Yay. Thank you. Um, can you tell us where people can find you? So I'll put the, the links that you've mentioned, the food addictions resources site and your food addiction education group. Uh, but any other places that people can find you? Yeah, so people can join our online community, and uh, they'll find the uh, the link at foodaddictionreset.com. Okay. You got food addiction resources, and then food addiction reset, and then the Facebook group is food addiction education. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, any last parting words of wisdom? Just, um, I think the most important thing for anyone to know is this is not your fault. You are not choosing. The choosing behavior in the, in the, the choosing center in the brain, the decision-making center in the brain is not firing. It's the craving pathway that has control of your, your behavior. You, you are not choosing. So all this stuff about, oh, make a better choice. No, no. Alcoholics are not choosing right. when they go on a bender. And so, and I think the other thing is it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. That's great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I just, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate you so much. I just, I'm so grateful that you're open to this topic and that you want to develop it. Yeah. That's great. Thanks. All right. Wasn't that packed with really interesting information? I know after I interviewed her, I went on and ordered the textbook that she's written, Processed Food Addiction. And I haven't had a chance to read all through it because it's a big uh, textbook, but there's so much interesting information there. And I really think that this is an area, if you learn about it, if you think you're affected by it, if you learn about it, you're going to be far better equipped to cope with it and manage it. Um, and all of the different resources that Dr. Iflin mentioned in her interview, I'll make sure they're listed in the um, show notes and on the blog post so you, you can link to them from there. All right, and if you are struggling with this, as Dr. Iflin said, community and support is a really important piece of this. 
uh, through coaching, I can help support you with uh, food addiction or binge eating or any of those types of behaviors. And we can work on finding solutions for them together for you. Uh, head on over to the website, weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca forward slash work dash with dash me, or just click on the work with me tab at the top right. Uh, and you can book an introductory session with me. And that just gives us a chance to sit down and have a chat over video conferencing about how I can best help you with what your specific issues are. All right. Well, have a fantastic week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.